This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, the Tom Hartman program, the Young Turks, the Bugle, Moyers and Company, and the Majority Report. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode may come across as outright dehumanizing to legal entities who are literally not human. Look, I have no problem with money. Who doesn't like money? It's good for buying things, you're giving to a stripper who you want to spend more time with, or buying things for a stripper friend, or, or paying off a stripper when she knows too much, or stuffing in a stripper's G-string. You ever tried to tuck compliments or a, a poem in a stripper's thong? It infuriates them. So I have no problem with money. Well, except for the fact that it's a measurement and we all treat it as if it's true wealth and the debt inherent in it is a huge issue that we hardly... You get the point. But anyway, money has its good side. It's undeniable that many great things have been created in the pursuit of cash. But when things are done only for money, purely for dollars, that thing ends up sucking... When movies are done only for money, you get the Transformers and Battleship and Fast and Furious and Emptiness and a Pretty Dress. When theater is only for money, you get Spider-Man the Musical and Legally Blonde the Musical and punch me in the throat and drag my earlobes over fossilized coral reef the musical. When technology is only for money, you get weapons for war, speakers and earphones designed to break after a hundred uses, and telephones that after one week are more obsolete than Jay Leno interviewing Pat Robertson. When medicine is done only for money, we get treatments rather than cures and prescription pills that cost more than blood diamonds. When healthcare is only for money, you get people yelling, let him die, at a poor person who needs a transplant. Political office only for money, you get the ripest group of well-dressed turd piles, snake oil selling snakes, who would pawn their own child in exchange for a good rating from the gun lobby, yeast infections, beast conceptions, wrestling over who gets to be on Lucifer's side in the five-on-five Senate basketball game. Schooling only for money? You get for-profit scams indebting students to a lifetime of pointless, meaningless work they despise, placing their self-worth in a fantasy football game because they had their hope of affecting any small change in a tiny part of this world beaten out of them. Imprisonment only for money? We get countless millions locked away for petty crimes, destroying their lives for a bump in the prison industrial stock price. Armed conflict only for money. You get a state of infinite war. Why stop the gravy train, huh? Why, why, why kill the golden goose? Why take your fully loaded Glock of a out of the glory hole of an oil pipeline? Media done only for money? We get six propaganda-pushing conglomerates owning the entire landscape. Music only for money. Britney Spears mass-produced, auto-tuned, auto-written, possibly ass-produced, totally forgettable fest, the soundtrack of a dying civilization. TV only for money. You get the Big Bang Theory. Number one rated TV show. Making money our only motivation pushes us toward a civilization of war, imprisonment, and vapid nothingness. I'm not saying financial gain can't be a motivator, but why does it feel like we're getting to a point where it's the only motivator? I've got no motivation. I've got no sticking 
Sticking a whale in a fish tank, to change the subject slightly, is a bad idea. Uh, what's the old joke? It, 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 it uh, uh, doesn't get you the fish and the whale isn't happy. No, that's a, that's a bad variation. Anyhow, with all its body fat pressed up against all four glass walls, there's no room for any of the other fish, the goldfish, the zebrafish, the suckerfish, to swim around or even eat, since, of course, the whale's going to eat not only all the fish food, but likely the fish themselves. Eventually, all the other fish are going to die. Then all you're left with is a whale alone in a fish tank. And what good is that? point is, whales don't belong in fish tanks any more than giant transnational monopolies or oligopolies belong in our economy. Nature has a way of restricting the size of animals and their ecosystems, making sure they don't get too big and cause problems for the other animals and organisms that call that same ecosystem home. Similarly, our economy must have mechanisms to restrict the size of corporations to make sure they don't become too big and cause problems for other smaller businesses trying to make a living. This was the intent of the Sherman Antitrust Act passed in 1890 during the height of the Gilded Age, also known as the Long Depression, when there was a bunch of whales in our fish tank economy. But the last great breakup of a monopoly happened in the 1970s and 80s when Richard Nixon's Justice Department went after AT&T, which at the time was the largest corporation in the world, for violating antitrust laws. After a settlement, AT&T agreed in 1984 to break up its bell system into seven different companies known as the Baby Bells. That left the market open for new players to jump in, offering new services and new prices. The AT&T whale had been taken out of the fish tank, and in the end, it was good to all the investors involved as well. In fact, the value of AT&T and all its former subsidiaries tripled after the breakup. Breaking up monopolies is good for the economy. Whether it's the breakup of Standard Oil and American Tobacco in the early 20th century, or more recently, the breakup of AT&T, removing the whale from the fish tank always leads to more competition in the market, which, to quote conservatives, means lower prices and better products. Unfortunately, there haven't been many success stories since the breakup of AT&T. That's because in response to the AT&T breakup, Ronald Reagan stopped enforcing the Antitrust Act. And the monopolies and oligopolies have since returned. Even the baby bells began merging together, again forming bigger and bigger telecom companies. This week, Robert Reich warned that future bailouts of Wall Street are inevitable. Why? Because there's too many dang whales in the Wall Street fish tank. As Reich pointed, points out, quote, the biggest Wall Street banks are now far bigger than they were four years ago when they were considered too big to fail. The five largest have almost 44% of all U.S. bank deposits. That's up from 37% in 2007, just before the crash. A decade ago, they only had 28%. That means our entire banking system relies on just a few whales that must be saved at all costs from going belly up, or else the entire system goes belly up. While banking is the most notorious example of whales in a fish tank, it's not the only example. Consider our food industry. Crane Tom Philpot at Mother Jones Magazine, agriculture oligopoly, oligopolies exist from farm to shelf. Just four companies control 90% of the global grain trade. Just three companies control 70% of our beef industry. And just four companies control 58% of the pork and chicken industry. 
On the retail side, Walmart controls a quarter of the entire U.S. grocery market. And just four companies produce 75% of our breakfast cereals, 75% of our snack foods, 60% of our cookies, and half of all the ice cream sold in supermarkets across the nation. And then there's the health insurance market. Just four health insurance companies, United Health Group, WellPoint, Aetna, and Humana, control three-quarters of the entire health insurance market. And as a 2007 study by the group Healthcare for America now uncovered, in 38 states, just two insurers control 57% of the market. In 15 states, one insurance one company controls 60% of the market. Since there's no competition in that marketplace, prices continue to get higher and higher, while the profits for these whales skyrocket and the services that they're offering start to stink. In the cellular phone market, just four companies, AT&T, AT&T Mobile, Verizon Wireless, T-Mobile, and Sprint Nextel, Four companies control 89% of the market. And in the Internet market, just a handful of corporations, AT&T, Comcast, Time Warner, and Verizon, control more than half of the market. Also, from newspapers to television, radio to movies, oligopolies, or whales, dominate the markets. If we were to give the Internet monopolies the same treatment Richard Nixon gave AT&T in the 1970s, then maybe we Americans could enjoy the same super-fast Internet speeds and super-cheap rates that most of the developed world has because they keep the whales out of their fish tanks. For example, South Korea gets Internet speeds 200 times faster than what most Americans get, yet they pay $27 a month for that. Similar success stories can be found all across Europe. Rising health care, food, and energy costs can all be tracked back to the whales in the fish tank problem in, in the in the monopolies in America. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Another day, another devastating report about how the banks are screwing us. Well, this is about Morgan Stanley and what they did during the meltdown of the housing market. Well, uh, the New York Times explains that in the fall of 2005, the bank employees got uh, non-public assessment, private assessment, so nobody else knows about this except the people at the bank, about how the subprime market uh, was a house of cards. Now, what happens next is interesting. With that knowledge, they decide, hey, you know what, in February of 2006, we'll build uh, a, a product, a financial product, that is full of those toxic mortgages. Now, wait a minute, now, you just got an assessment saying they're toxic. Why are you building an investment like that? Well, it might have something to do with this. A couple of months later, in April of 2006, they created their own internal hedge fund inside Morgan Stanley to bet against those toxic mortgages. So they create them, they prop them up, they sell them to other people, and as soon as they sell them to those people, they short them, meaning that they bet against them because they know that they just sold them a bag of goods. 
Okay, you see, this would be called fraud. And if we had a real Justice Department, it would be pursued. But of course we don't. We have a Justice Department that is wholly beholden to the banks in this country. It is sick. Now, if it wasn't clear enough what Morgan Stanley's intentions were, well, they just got sued by one of the people that they suckered, a bank out of Taiwan. And when they did an investigation because of the civil lawsuit, they found what the government could have found if they had any intention of investigating any of these banks. It turns out the bankers at Morgan Stanley did know how toxic this stuff was. In fact, let me give you their nicknames for the packages they created. Subprime Meltdown. This was before the meltdown that they labeled it the subprime meltdown. This is the stuff that they're selling to other people saying, oh, this is awesome, you should buy this. Hitman, nuclear holocaust, Mike Tyson's punch out. And my favorite, it's not on the list there, shitbag. That was one of the nicknames for the stuff that they were selling their clients. Gee, I wonder if that was fraud, I can't quite tell. So, then, you might say, well, how sure were they? When they, you ask the Morgan Stanley spokesperson, well, they seem to know this was pretty toxic. Wouldn't that be a fraud? They say, oh, no, no, the guy who gave him, or the several guys who gave him those names, that wasn't in their field of expertise. Quote, it was not his job or within his skill set to assess the state of the market or the credit quality of the transaction being discussed. Really? They were selling it, so you'd think that it would be in their skill set to know what was in it, and you would think that they know what's in it because they just called it the nuclear holocaust. Okay, if you weren't sure yet, then we find another email. And this is an employee saying, one of the reasons that we should sell this junk is, quote, the ability to short up to $325 million of credits in the CDO. Now, if you don't speak financial speak, I will decipher that for you. Shorting means betting against. So they're like, let's create this thing, and let's bet $350 million that it will collapse. How do we know it's going to collapse? We're the ones who created And in fact, they did wind up putting $170 million of bets against it. So it wasn't just their intention, they took action on it. Well, how bad was it? And did they, and because the main excuse the Justice Department has every time is, look, it's really hard, these cases are so hard to prove. It might have helped if you tried, by the way, and got these emails, they didn't even try. But if you did try, oh, but you have to prove that they knowingly did this. I think calling something a shit bag <laughs> nuclear holocaust gives you a pretty decent idea that they knew what was in that crap. And then if you weren't sure, here's another email where they say that the stuff was, quote, deteriorating appraisal quality that is very flagrant. That's one of my favorites. It's deteriorating, and it's deteriorating in a, in a way that is very flagrant. Everybody inside the building knows. In fact, what they did was they took the guys who packaged it up and wrote the email saying this is really terrible stuff and they moved them to the division which would bet against those more toxic mortgages. Gee, I wonder if they knowingly did it. How easy a case would this have been to prove if the Justice Department wanted to prove it? Of course, Lanny Brewer, the head of the criminal division, had no such interest. And every time he's asked about it, oh, he said, oh my God. I made it my top priority. I just never got to it. <laughs> Funny top priority you got. Justice uh, Attorney General uh, Eric Holder, of course, used to work at Covington Burling. 
What's that? Oh, that's the law firm that represented the top banks in the country. He was their defense lawyer. And now he's the attorney general. Another wild coincidence. Golly gee, they couldn't prove a damn thing. By the way, on that one deal alone that they wind up calling the stack, because they did, had to sell it to somebody, and they're like, okay, okay, fine, it's not Mike Tyson's punch out, it's the stack. Okay, well, what happened to that deal? They had $500 million of assets backing the deal. $415 million ended up being worthless. The people they sold it to lost 415 out of the $500 million. Gee, I wonder if they knew it was going to be fraud. I wonder if that was a criminal action knowingly taken by these lawyers. When you read the emails, it's not even close. It is obvious. But our government is in on it. They don't prosecute these guys because these guys are their friends. They defended them before, and as soon as they get out of office, they're going to get paid millions of dollars to defend them again. And part of the services that they render is to make sure none of them no matter how criminal their actions were, no matter how fraudulent their actions were, no matter how much it cost other people, consumers, and the taxpayers, never ever suffer the consequences. That they all keep their bonuses and never see a day in jail. This system is rigged against us and it is sick. Get up, come on, get down with the sickness. Get up, come on, get down with the sickness. Get up. Come on, get down with the sickness. Open up your head and let it flow into me. Get up, come on, get down with the sickness. You mother, get up, come on, get down with the sickness. You fucker, get up, come on, get down with the sickness. Madness is the gift that has been given to me. I can see inside you the sickness is rising. And to show just what a mess the American economy is in and just what President Obama is up against for the next four years, in one of the ballsiest imaginable moves, a group of AIG shareholders here is launching a lawsuit against the US government over the terms of their bailout in 2008. And AIG themselves spent the first half of this week seriously considering joining it. Now, on the official corporate ballometer, Andy, the scientific instrument that gauges the size of a corporation's testicles during any <coughs> given action, you will see that those are some pretty gargantuan balls. <laughs> On the scale, I believe they rank somewhere between regulation-sized basketball and space hopper. <coughs> just, to, just to be clear, the American taxpayer, which now includes me, Andy, saved <laughs> IIG from what was almost certain bankruptcy. <laughs> and now AIG is going to thank us by suing us. That, that is like someone robbing your house, slipping and falling on the way out, and then suing you for breaking their leg. <laughs> when they came up with that lawsuit, there must have been jumping up and down in the conference room, Andy, and high-fiving, as well as a deep clanging sound everywhere in the room, made by their giant titanium testicles slamming together. <laughs> this made a great, I mean, I think this has been a strong start to 2013 for America, John. We had the, uh, obviously, the... Um, the, the hitting baseballs off a warship into a crowd yep. of jet skis last year, but the trillion-dollar coin and suing the government for bailing you out, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really taking Americanism to a whole new financial level. That's Well, and, that, and that's, that is the claim. The claim is that they're doing this 
uh, really in the most American possible way, because it turns out they're claiming that the terms of the bailout deal forced AIG into a loan with a high interest rate, which was unfair to its shareholders, as it deprived them of tens of billions of dollars in extra profit, and, crucially, violated the Fifth Amendment, uh, which prohibits the taking of private property for public uh, uses. So, AIG is going to use the Fifth Amendment to sue us, Andy. In that case, allow me to use the First Amendment to tell them to go f*** themselves. <laughs> because how thoughtless it was for us to have saved AIG's arse for them, Andy. Did we somehow not save it enough? Could we have saved it better? <laughs> Would they have preferred us to save their arse, then polish that arse up, slip a 20 between its cheeks, and then bake their arse a cake to thank them for letting us save it? Now, on, on the plus side, Andy... This lawsuit has done the impossible and fully united America for the first time in decades. This country cannot agree on anything at the moment, apart from how much everyone now thinks that AIG is a bunch of grade-A, platinum-grade dick satchels. They've, they've become a lightning rod for hate, and sadly, not a lightning rod for actual lightning. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, talk about the trillion-dollar coin, I mean, that could be... You know, something in, you know, all future bailouts being, you know, in billion-dollar banknotes slapped on the arses of the managing directors of failing banks. I think it be a far more honest relationship between the government and the banks that have got them into that trouble. The only person in America who publicly stated that this lawsuit was a good idea was a man called David Boyes, who wrote an op-ed in USA Today. But it turned out that David Boyes is actually the ex-CEO of AIG's lawyer, who is the man behind the whole lawsuit. So the only person <laughs> stating that they're in support of this is literally being paid to say that. And Luckily, the op-ed was only in USA Today, so people aren't going to read it so much as they're going to step over it in the morning when exiting their hotel rooms. <laughs> Boom! Paper slam, Andy. <laughs> Paper slam. And all this is happening at the same time that AIG are running national TV commercials, announcing that they've successfully paid off the entire bailout loan and thanking America for its help <coughs> pulling them out of bankruptcy. The current ad says, We at AIG said we were going to turn it around, and we did. We're helping Joplin, Missouri, come back from a devastating tornado. And now we're helping the East Coast recover from Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, and you know why you're doing that, AIG? Because you're a f***ing insurance company. <laughs> you're not doing any of that out of charity. You're doing it because you're contractually obliged to. <laughs> and even then, you're trying to wheedle out of some of those claims. <laughs> anyway, the, the ad goes on to say, we're now leaner and focused on what we do best. We've repaid every dollar America lent us. We turned it around. Thank you, America. Thank you, America. Thank you, America, for the freedom to ensure a brighter future. And, and yet, Andy, they very nearly joined this lawsuit, which is going ahead now anyway. So were those thank yous <laughs> sarcastic? Am I mishearing the tone of voice there? Was that the first ever sarcastic thank you commercial? Because one thing <laughs> is for sure, at the end of the world, when this planet is just a pile of smoking rubble, the only things left standing are going to be cockroaches and AIG. <laughs> That's Darwinism, John. Yeah. That is economic Darwinism. I actually think, it, at the very least, Andy, it's appropriate for America to now make some commercials to send a message back to AIG set to <laughs> similarly cloying music. AIG said they were going to do it, and they did. They paid back their bailout fund, but only after giving hundreds of millions in bonuses to executives. They've paid back every dollar America lent them while bitching and complaining every step of the way, and then considered suing the people that helped them in the first place. They did it. They actually did it. F*** you, AIG.
G. <laughs> you. Seriously, go f yourself. No, seriously. Seriously, AIG. Seriously. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. There's a chapter called The Second Gilded Age in Paul Krugman's book where he describes the extraordinary rise in wealth and power of the very rich during this era of unregulated greed. Since Ronald Reagan's election in 1980, the top 1% of Americans have seen their incomes increase by 275%. But after accounting for inflation, the typical hourly wage for a worker has increased just $1.23. Big money, as Krugman writes in the book, buys big influence, and that's why the financiers of Wall Street never truly experience regime change, because their cash brings both parties to heel. So the policies that got us where we are today in this big ditch of chronic depression have done little for most, but have been very good to a few at the top. But those at the top are not satisfied with having only most of it. They want it all. And if he were writing his book today, Krugman could find plenty of evidence in the deal that supposedly kept us from going over the fiscal cliff. Behind closed doors, Congress larded it with corporate tax breaks worth tens of billions of dollars. Everything from tax credits for NASCAR racing and the railroads to subsidies for Hollywood, rebates for the rum industry, and loopholes for offshore financing that could help giant multinationals like General Electric avoid billions of dollars in corporate income taxes. Writing in the Washington Examiner, columnist Tim Carney says, many of these expensive giveaways were spawned by a web of lobbyists, donors, and staffers surrounding Democratic Senator Max Baucus of Montana, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. And as we know from the Obamacare fight, Baucus is a connoisseur of revolving door corruption. Pick any one of the special interest tax breaks extended by the Cliff deal, Carney wrote, and you're likely to find a former Baucus aide who lobbied for it on behalf of a large corporation or industry organization. Even the pro-business Wall Street Journal was appalled. They called it a crony capitalist blowout. CEOs and lobbyists were tripping over themselves as they traipsed up and down Pennsylvania Avenue between Congress and the White House, privately protecting their interests as they publicly urge austerity on everyone else. Here's Lloyd Blankfein, CEO and chair of the global investment giant Goldman Sachs, when asked by CBS News' Scott Pelley about how he would reduce the federal deficit. You're going to have to undoubtedly do something to lower people's expectations, the entitlements, 
and what people think that they're going to get uh, because it's not going to they're not going to get it social security medicare medicaid some things and you know you could go back and you can look at the history of these things and social security wasn't devised to be a system that supported you for a 30-year retirement after a 25-year career entitlements have to be slowed down and contained because we can't afford them going forward because we can't afford them oh uh, yes but goldman makes sure their entitlements aren't touched here's the story after 9-11, Congress created tax-exempt Liberty Zone bonds to help small businesses rebuild near ground zero. Turns out, Goldman's friends in high places consider it a small business, too, although it made $5.6 billion in profits last year. As the fiscal cliff fiasco was playing out over New Year's Eve, faster than the ball dropped in Times Square, a deal was struck in Washington that will extend the subsidies for Goldman's fancy new headquarters in lower Manhattan. In their 43 stories of glass and steel and a footprint two city blocks long, Goldman Sachs reigns supreme, thanks to a system rigged by and for the powerful rich. And then this. Just hours before the fiscal cliff deals higher individual tax rates, kicked in. Goldman handed Lloyd Blankfein and his top lieutenants a total of $65 million in restricted stock. Those were bonuses awarded a month earlier than usual so they could all beat the coming tax hike from which they have been spared for more than 10 lucrative years. It will not surprise you, I'm sure, to learn that corporations announced more special dividends last month than in any other December since at least 1955, doing everything they can to avoid helping pay off the debt that their CEOs have been urging Congress to cut. As for working people, tough luck. Because the fiscal cliff deal ends the cut in payroll taxes, the average worker this year will take home about $1,000 less. Shocking development on Capitol Hill today. Instead of the Democrats, it is a rare cave-in by the Republicans. Oftentimes, of course, when we're talking about the ceiling caving in, it is the Democrats that are uh, folding up shop. Uh, but in this case, it is the Republicans. And it's literally on the debt ceiling issue. Now, President Obama said, I'm not going to negotiate over that. The debt ceiling was coming up. And uh, the Republicans said, oh, yes, you will. And then today they were like, yeah, never mind. We changed our minds. We won't negotiate over it. In fact, they said, all right, we'll continue to fund uh, all this. And remember, they already spent the money. This is just lifting the debt ceiling so that we can pay the money that Congress has already spent. Right? And they said, all right, look, fine. We'll uh, put that off till May 18th. So that's interesting, May 18th. So does that mean that they're not going to have a fight here over government funding uh, or budgets, et cetera? No. Here, let me show you the calendar, okay? Um, May 18th uh, is uh, when they're going to issue the, you know, and talk about the debt ceiling again. But there's a couple of things that happened before that. For example, on April 15th, 
they are going to talk about the budget. That is when they need to hand it in. And now as part of this bill that the Republicans voted on, if they don't pass the budget by then, they're not going to get paid, which is nonsense. They're just going to delay their payment till later. It's just a political gimmick, right? And then also there's March 1st. And what's, what happens there? The sequester does. And that is the cuts that are set to take, uh, set to uh, occur on the defense budget and also social spending. So basically what the Republicans are doing are they're moving the debt ceiling fight to after those other fights. Now why are they doing that? Now there's a whole host of reasons given in uh, different reports. In fact, let me read uh, through them, show you what nonsense they are and then I'll tell you the real reason. Chris Eliza writes at the Washington Post, this is a strategic gambit designed to maximize their leverage on several major budgetary fights between now and then regarding the Republicans. But that makes no sense whatsoever because what's strategic about delaying the fight between now and March 1st? What are they going to do? Gain leverage? They're already deeply unpopular. Uh, the president is at over 55% in popularity, the House Republicans are at 24%. What are they going to do? Make up a 30-point gap in one month? No, that's not why they did it. All right, continuing. They say, well, there's another theory. A prominent Republican consultant told uh, Saliza, the Republicans have to do a better job of picking our fights, so we need more concern about the impact of Obama's reckless spending before we fight with a guy who controls the bully pulpit. Nonsense. The president always controls the bully pulpit. He controls it now, he'll control it then. And what are you going to do? Again, gain leverage in a month? You're going to somehow fight back and somehow be in a much better position? No, that's not what this is about. I'm about to tell you in a second. Another senior House Republican aide says, quote, In the sequestration fight, we have greater leverage because current law is on our side. Wrong again, Bob. The Republicans desperately don't want what they call the sequester to happen because it cuts 1.2 billion dollars from the military and they are all on record as saying they do not want that to happen under any circumstance they don't have any leverage there the law is not on their side they're just pretending they're faking it one last one by Washington Post again Saliza says by postponing a potential debt ceiling showdown and instead making their stand on the sequester and to a lesser extent the continuing resolution that must be passed to fund the federal government that's the one on April 15th the Republican controlled house pits itself against a less popular political entity the Senate nonsense nonsense you think that when they get to a budget fight whether it's on March 1st or, or April 15th the whole country will be like, oh, I see, this is the Boehner uh, and the Republicans versus the Democratic Senate. Uh, Obama's out of this fight. <laughs> of course not. They're going to say it's Obama versus Boehner, Obama versus the Republicans. So why are they lying about all these different reasons? Why are they inventing all these reasons? Because they don't want to tell you the real reason. The real reason is because the debt ceiling involves the bond markets. So. That's paying back the money that we borrowed. Who did we borrow it from? Well, many different places. The American people, China, but also Wall Street. And what Wall Street and corporate America just told the Republicans is, shut up. You are not having a debt ceiling fight. That's why Obama was such a tough guy on it. Because he had already talked to the uh, corporate leaders when they came to the White House. And they said, don't worry, we'll take care of those Republicans. They work for us anyway. And that's exactly what happened. The Republicans came in and said, ah, that's stealing. I mean, we don't want to fight over this. The bond market would be super angry. But later, if they shut down the government in one of those other fights, 
Well, who cares? Well, then, you know what? You can't make Social Security payments. You can't, you close down the parks. You, you, you can't make payments to our troops. Well, Wall Street doesn't give a damn about that. They're like, yeah, yeah, go fight on those grounds. But you're going to pay me, okay? Of course, in fact, look, look at TV. They, they already told us this. Look at all these different uh, Republicans and conventional wisdom business people like Maria Bartiromo, who of course represents the business community on CNBC, saying the same thing. Watch. Do you believe the GOP should be using the debt ceiling as a leverage point to get the president to agree to the cuts? I think that would be a grave mistake. I don't think that would solve anything. I don't think we should pick fights where we're in a position that we can't, in fact, in the end, enforce our will because we have no evidence that Barack Obama is going to compromise. So Bartiromo egging them on. You're not going to fight over the debt ceiling, are you? I got Wall Street behind me telling me, don't pick that fight. No, 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 we won't, we won't, we won't. Even Gingrich, no, 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 not the debt ceiling, not the debt ceiling. We'll have a de death match later on other stuff, but not the debt ceiling. In fact, Club for Growth, that's the most conservative organization. Those are the guys who it, out other moderate Republicans. They f do primary runs against them, etc. Interesting, look at this. The Club for Growth will, on the other hand, strongly oppose any efforts during the upcoming debate over the continuing resolution to sequester that failed to arrest out-of-control spending. This is part of their statement saying, you can go ahead and vote to lift the debt ceiling. We won't score that against you. And that's the cue, that's the memo that is sent out to Republicans. Hey, we just talked to our bosses. They say don't fight on the debt ceiling, fight on the other two things that we just mentioned. We'll score those so they go on your conservative report card. We won't score the debt ceiling one. Why not? Because they all work for the bond market and Wall Street. This is all a scam on us. And by the way, do uh, the Democrats agree? Oh, hell yeah, Jay Carney for the White House says, we support the extension of the debt ceiling without drama or delay. In other words, we know who we all work for. Uh, so next time around when we have a food fight, it'll be uh, over American citizens and who gets paid and doesn't get paid among them. It won't be about who gets paid and doesn't get paid for bondholders who are actually on Wall Street. I saw the weary farmer plowing sod and loam. I heard the auction hammer just a knocking down his home but the banks are made of marble with a guard at every door and the bolts are stuffed with silver that the farmer sweated for part of what we're seeing here is an all-out push by the establishment media, the establishment in uh, Washington, uh, billionaires like uh, Pete Peterson and their fix the debt program, their sponsorship of uh, Simpson Bowles. And CNBC weighs in, and this is just, this is just precious. My God, for the 6,000 people who watch CNBC on a daily basis just to make themselves feel good about... Um, their own unbridled greed and their own righteousness as job makers in the world, job creators, job creators. Do I have my, uh, I don't think I do. Thunder.
That's when I need my thunder thing there. Well, I get this. Not the same. This piece in CNBC from last week, income inequality has been on the rise for three decades in the United States, according to the Congressional Budget Office, with the gap between the haves and the have-nots currently at its widest point since 1967. But as Democrats and Republicans wrangle over fiscal fairness and taxation, some experts argue that income inequality is not such a bad thing. They even go as far as saying America's economy functions on the base of it. And then who do they quote? What expert? Why, of course. I think it's quite obvious. Rick Santorum. <laughs> Rick Santorum said last February that income inequality was part of the fabric of American society and long should it be so. That's the first expert. A speech from his uh, Republican presidential campaign. This is such a piece of garbage, this uh, piece, I can't even believe it. The next quote is from Jared Bernstein, senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And he says, though the issue of our high levels of income inequality won't be front and center in this debate, they're very much in the background. Well, anything else you've read of Jared Bernstein suggests that he believes this is a real problem for our economy. So he's not one of the experts. Then they quote, the 1975 work, Equality and Efficient, The Big Trade-Off, the Harvard economist Arthur Orkin, Oken argued that inequality was the price to be paid for an efficient economy. That, of course, was 30 years ago before we had this explosion of income inequality in this country. Thomas Garrett, the next expert they're going to quote for this piece, Assistant Vice President the St. Louis Federal Reserve wrote in 2010 that income inequality in the U.S. was not so bad. In other words, this expert's not arguing that income inequality is good, just that it's a little bit exaggerated. And the reason why it's exaggerated through our U.S. Uh, census numbers is because statistics do not include the non-cash resources received by lower-income households such as the tens of billions of dollars in subsidies for housing, food, and medical care, and the tax payments made by wealthier households to fund these transfers. In other words, you should know that nobody's getting billions of dollars for their own home. No, that's over the course of millions of people. So he's saying that $200 that people get a month to buy food, that's not factored in. And if you factor in that $200 uh, a month, you're talking about a whole $2,400 a year and the gap between someone who has hundreds of millions of dollars and someone who has let's say $20,000 a year in income that's a whole different equation when you add that $2,400 could, could you imagine the person who's like well, I mean, a family living off of fifteen grand—that's one thing. But now that I see the full numbers, it's—I mean, sixteen grand. I don't yeah, seventeen like, four. Ah. Whoa! Wait a second. Oh, that's like really misleading. And then the only other expert they said was Edward Conrad, or, or, or quoted a former partner at asset management firm Bain Capital, argued that inequality was actually good for economic growth. In his book, Unintended Consequences, everything you've been told about the economy is wrong. So this is an enormous piece of garbage uh, 
I, I don't even know if this is a reported piece or a an opinion piece, but either way, pretty thin gruel to try and convince people that they've got it pretty well and they just don't appreciate it. If you don't mind having to go without things, it's a fine life. And though it ain't all jolly old pleasure outings, it's a fine life. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Once in a blue moon, our media gets something right. They do their research like good boys and girls. The bankruptcy of the hostess bakeries is definitely not one of those times. Neither is much else over the past 30 years. I mean, hell, the media couldn't even do the lackluster research required to discover that the Heisman Trophy runner-up Manti Teo's dead girlfriend was actually made from toothpicks and silly putty. Teo's girlfriend made Wilson on the movie Castaway look damn well outspoken, and the media was unable to discover that Lance Armstrong had been doping throughout his entire career, even though he brazenly hired people to shoot crack-laced blow darts at him during the Tour de France. In fact, the last time the mainstream media ripped open a big story was when they somehow discovered that Liberace was gay. In the hostess bankruptcy, most media outlets ran with the story that the Baker's Union at Hostess held a strike rather than helping the company get through a rough period, thereby forcing Hostess into bankruptcy, losing everyone their jobs, and forcing Twinkies to go flaccid throughout the land. But in fact, Hostess had been owned by a couple of hedge funds for the past several years called Monarch and Silverpoint. Because apparently hedge funds name themselves the same way 14-year-old girls pick screen names. And I think this next part is going to shock the sh** right out of your blowhole. Those hedge funds were not trying their hardest to save Hostess. They wanted to go bankrupt and get rid of the union, thereby freeing them to sell the many brands of Hostess for over a billion dollars without the unions attached. Bankruptcy was the plan all along. Why actually create something in this country when you can make an equal or bigger short-term profit by simply killing something that's been around for generations and then feasting on the carcass? The hedge funds almost literally lit the place on fire and claimed the insurance. But I don't want to say the hedge funds weren't thinking about the workers at all. They were. They did something for the workers. They stole their pensions. You see, the bakers at Hostess had been paying four twenty-five an hour to their pensions, about one-fourth of their hourly pay. Over the past year, $50 million was collected for those pensions. But a funny thing happened when that money tried to make its way from the workers' pockets to the pension. The money got stuck somewhere. That somewhere 
is inside the pockets of the higher-ups at Hostess. Basically, inside the pockets of Monarch and Silver The money will never be paid back. Over $186 million was stolen from the pensions in the past several years. So let's recap. You've got a well-known American company employing American workers, creating an American product for generations. Hedge funds buy it, rob the workers, intentionally bankrupt the company so they can sell the pieces for over a billion dollars. Hostess was tortured, gagged, murdered, and robbed, and then had its corpse lit on fire. And the plan was set into motion way back in 2004. Yet most of the media will tell you, it's those bakers. They should be thankful. A lot of Americans don't even have the opportunity to have their pension stolen. Ingrates. Since 2006, there have been about 10 million foreclosures, which is unbelievable. And everybody knows the pain of those foreclosures, and that's a huge problem in the country. Now, there was a second problem with those foreclosures. There was the robo-signing scandal, and the banks wound up having to pony up kind of $25 billion for it, because the reality is a lot of that is going to come from the U.S. taxpayer. Uh, but at least there was a settlement there, and of course they won't be charged with any of the crimes, even though it was criminal. So that was another huge problem. And in the robo-signing scandal, they would foreclose on houses they didn't even own, because they weren't checking the dom documents. They were just having robo-signatures on there. We foreclose, we foreclose, we foreclose. Whether they should have foreclosed or not, whether it was even their mortgage or not, they would foreclose. And so we know about that tremendous injustice. Well, what's interesting is the third kind of injustice because of these foreclosures. There's two million houses that are still uh, in foreclosure process but have not been foreclosed upon. Well, why is that? Well, it turns out there's this thing called a zombie title problem, where the banks tell you that they're going to foreclose on your house, and then they don't. Now, why do they do that, and what kind of trouble does that cause? Whew. Now, wait till you get a load of the troubles. Uh, number one, when they go to uh, say that you should have to leave the house, and they do, and the people leave the house, they don't realize they still have the title in their, in their name. And if the bank changes their mind and decides not to foreclose on your house, for reasons I'll explain in a second, well, then you still have to keep paying the taxes. You have to uh, make sure that your lawn and your house is in good shape. Otherwise, the county starts giving fees and penalties and fines, etc. And by the way, the bank keeps charging you saying, hey, you know what, you still owe me that mortgage. You don't even realize you own the house because they never told you. It got so bad that in three different states recently, since nobody knew that they still owned the house because the bank had tricked them with the zombie title trick, the houses blew up. And you think, no, come on, really? Yes, you know why? Because they never turned off the gas. And so, since they don't turn off the gas and nobody's in the house, the gas builds up, builds up, builds up, and in three different instances, at least, the houses have literally exploded. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about literal zombies, right? The houses become zombies in a sense. Now, wait till you get a sense of how 
horrible this injustice is and what they do to Americans here. So David Volker is one of the guys. He uh, had a contractor business in Buffalo, New York, and his business ran into trouble during the recession. He couldn't make his payments, so HSBC said, we're foreclosing on your house. They literally placed a padlock on his door and put bank stickers all over the floor, and they said, you're done, you're foreclosed, get out of here. Okay? They literally locked him out of his own house. So he was foreclosed. He went home. He went to his daughter's house and was living in the uh, living room, I believe. And then they come back later and go, ha ha, uh, we changed our minds. And it turns out you still own the house. And uh, so you now owe all these taxes, all these liens, all these extra mortgages, and all the extra penalties that you have accrued. Well, Volker says, quote, I was stunned. I never for a moment thought I still owned this house. You know why? Because they padlocked the house and they told him he was foreclosed on. Now he goes and says, okay, look, HSBC, I have arranged the sale. It's just a short sale for this house. You are going to get the money. The bank says, no, we don't want to do it. You still owe us and we're going to give it over to debt collectors and we're still going to have the government hound you, okay? But we will not accept the sale. But then what in the world are you supposed to do? Okay, we're just getting warmed up. Now wait till you find out about the other people that this has afflicted. So let's go to Marlon Sheaf. He's a 55-year-old who used to drive trucks for Sarah Lee. And he did that for uh, 25 years. He was recently sentenced to probation. Why? Because of the zombie titles. You're thinking, no, you can't, they can't arrest you for this. That doesn't make any sense. It does. Let me explain. So the county said, hey, listen, I, I, you got a tax lien, man. You're, you technically own the house. They lied to you. That's your problem, not my problem. The bank told you you were foreclosed on like they do in every one of these cases. Sad day for you. You owe me this lien and you're not paying it. You owe me all these taxes for this house that you don't even live in, right? And then they give her over a debt collector. Oh, here we go. Now here comes the trouble. So for, in his case, they said, uh, we're charging you $4,185 for code violations. I'm going to charge you an extra $185 for court costs. And we'll even charge you $10,000 if the city is forced to tear down the house you don't live in and the bank told you was foreclosed upon. Okay? So that's a zombie title for you. So what's he going to do? They arrested him because once you owe the government money, they can arrest you. Now, it's actually a private debt collector who's actually collecting the money, but it doesn't matter. He can use the power of the government to arrest you anyway. So poor Marlin, and this makes me sick, he has to go out there and repair the house he can't live in. There's already people that came in there and they have all sorts of junk in there, homeless people, drug addicts, etc. But he has to go and repair the house. So he had to paint the house, he had to repair the steps. And this is the indignity, for whatever reason, really got under my skin. He has to go back and mow the lawn every week. Oh, for Christ's sake, but the bank doesn't even let him sell the house as you saw with the other case. And he says, well, I got to get rid of this debt, I got to let me... I don't have all. I don't have this money. I didn't live in the house. They say, sad day. The uh, banks uh, don't have to tell you if they decide not to foreclose, and they're under no legal obligation. You're under all the legal obligations. Now, by the way, if you sold the money, the house for a profit, would you then get the profit? Nope. The bank would get it. So they get all the benefits. You get all of the costs. Gee, I wonder why people are frustrated with banks and our government for not being able to help us at all. So. Uh, we continue. 
College, uh, Cleveland Martian College Law Professor uh, Kermit Lynn had a really great line about this. He said, these people have become like indentured serfs with all the responsibilities for the properties, but none of the rights. He's exactly right. I mean, this is what they've done to us on a mass scale. We work for them. And in this, the, the indignity that you can't even live in the house, but you have to pay the bills, otherwise you're going to jail, is mind-numbing. So why do the banks do it? Well, here's the interesting part. They say, banks can at least reap the insurance, the tax and accounting benefits, for documenting the loss if they say, oh, the house is valueless. I can't sell this house. So I, I got rid of the guys that are in the house, but it's not worth anything. So I'm going to write it off as a loss, then I get the tax benefits of it, and I claim it on insurance. If I sold the house, I couldn't do that because I'd get some money back. I couldn't get the insurance, and I wouldn't get as big a tax benefit. And on top of that, and the reason that they're kicking the people out of the house so they can play this trick on them, is just to get a little extra money. They then sell the unpaid debt to debt collectors. And now there's even more unpaid debt because you didn't realize you were accruing penalties and fees because you didn't know you still own the house. So they turn over to debt collectors and they say, hound them forever and make sure they, uh, you, or get whatever you want out of them because they already got the money from the debt collectors. This is cruelty beyond imagination, but it gets worse. There is actually no regulations that require the banks to let homeowners know that they have changed their mind about a foreclosure. Uh, is the government working on that at all? Absolutely not. Now, here's Judge Patrick Carney of Buffalo, New York. He works at the housing court, and here's what he says. The banks do not answer inquiries. They do not answer phone calls. They do not answer letters. Sound like uh, Dr. Zeus character. The whole situation is surreal, he said. Think about that. Not only do they tell you you're foreclosed, they padlock your house, they send you to the debt collectors, they uh, possibly get you arrested, and then when you ask them, they don't answer any inquiries and they have a legal right not to. What then what the hell are you supposed to do? Okay, it gets worse. Just when you think it can't get any worse. Well, then we go to the case of uh, Joseph Keller. He's from Columbus, Ohio, and like all the rest of these cases, hardworking American, ran into some trouble uh, during the recession couldn't afford to make the payments well he says okay and the bank told him you're foreclosed on go home again goes home uh, to live with his uh, kids in their tiny little room can uh, barely move around in there meanwhile the whole house is sitting there empty and again people break into the house same story um, so then he gets a letter from Chase's debt collector professional recovery services and they say at this time we're able to offer you a settlement, oh fantastic, of $25,258.41 on this account to be paid within 15 days. Well, are they not merciful? The guy doesn't have $25,000, he didn't even realize he owned the house. Again, you got to go back, you got to fix the house so you don't get more fines, etc. You got to mow the lawn. And by the way, he doesn't just owe them $25,000, he also owes the county $11,759 and eight cents. So basically, he owes uh, close to $37,000, which he does not have, and he has to maintain the house, which he also does not have, but technically he owns. So what's the extra twist in this case? Well, turns out he's got significant uh, liver disease. It's advanced, he's got hepatitis C and inactive tuberculosis. And he needs treatment from this, but it's a good thing because the Social Security Administration uh, can give him disability benefits. But they just rejected those benefits 
Because on the records, it shows that he still owns a house. The court says we might be able to hear your case in December. Keller said, I will very likely be dead by then. This is Tanya in Sassoon City, California, and I wanted to make a comment about your program that discussed rape. Before I start, I want to acknowledge that men can be and definitely are the victims of rape, and without dismissing the seriousness of that problem, um, I'm just going to limit my comments to rape of women by men. So the podcast discussion seemed to be missing a key understanding of the motivations, so to speak, of rapists. There is this deeply held misunderstanding in our society that rape occurs as a result of this sort of irrepressible, uncontrollable sexual desire. And it's this belief that perpetuates the idea that a woman's provocative dress or, or her perceived sexual teasing can somehow lure a man to rape. In fact, one of your callers even addressed this. He was saying that it's insulting to men to imply that they have no self-control and that their actions are driven by base lust. Well, he's right, of course. It is insulting to men to suggest they have no control over their sexual impulses. But more importantly, it exemplifies the problem with thinking of rape in terms of an out-of-control sexual impulse. The reality is that rape is not a crime motivated by sexual desire. It's really important that people understand this if we're going to have a productive conversation about rape. We know that studies have repeatedly shown that the majority of rapists have access to regular consensual sex and have, quote-unquote, normal sex drives. So this ceases to feel like this counterintuitive statistic if we realize that the gratification that rapists receive is not from the sex itself, but from the lack of consent, which then generates the feelings of power and domination that are in fact the primary purpose of rape. So it really is a crime of violence whose motivation is the control, domination, and humiliation of women. Now, yes, these ends are achieved in a sexual context, and the sexual context is important because it's an extremely effective tool for achieving the goals of humiliation, domination, and control, and this is because our bodies and our sexuality represent what, what I would think is probably the most intrinsically private and autonomous part of our humanity, and it's, it's probably the ultimate way to rob someone of their self-esteem, their personal power, their, their sovereignty, if you will, um, is through dominating their, the control of their body and their sexuality, which not coincidentally is exactly what Republicans are trying to do to women. So rape is actually about the subjugation of women, and I think it's more helpful in our understanding of sexual violence to think of rape as a means of misogyny than as a means of sex. Um, Jay, I just also wanted to comment on um, the ideas that you had around decoupling the language around victim blaming and risk aversion, and I definitely appreciate the point you made, but I want to just add an observation. There are so many segments of our society that do not have the privilege of reducing their exposure to crime. So we've created this society with many vulnerable populations that are marginalized and exploited and disempowered, and they're unable to avail themselves of the choices that you and I know can reduce our risk of being victimized by crime. I think many times just um, the lifestyle of poverty in and of itself is the very thing that puts them at high risk, and unfortunately, 
Um, most people in these circumstances don't have the opportunity to choose a lower-risk lifestyle. So having the wherewithal to live a risk-adverse lifestyle is largely a privilege of race, socioeconomic status, education level. And in the case of rape, the risk is more closely associated with the immutable biological characteristic of gender than it is with any behavioral choice on the part of the victim. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate your show. Keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. I had a couple thoughts concerning the uh, polygamy argument. The problem I have with polygamy has nothing to do with morality or any other or anything else. It's more about logistics and equality because if we assume that it's okay for one man to marry multiple women, then we have to assume that it's okay for one woman to marry multiple men. But if it's okay both ways, then all the men that that one woman are married to can be married to multiple women as well. And then at some point, it just gets too convoluted when it becomes, when it comes to uh, same-sex marriage, it's a lot more simple, where it's one person and then another person, and it's not any more complicated than that. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I, I definitely especially want to thank the person who called in and left the second voicemail that I played on today's show uh, because he made one of the absolute worst arguments I have ever heard for why we should legislate away people's freedoms. You know, Basically, what he was saying was, hey, we can't allow informed consenting adults to do that just think of the paperwork and you know i'm gonna make a comparison that's it'll sound outlandish believe me i'm not comparing the injustices done to each group of people they are not comparable in that way but there were arguments made in the days of slavery that the slaves could not be released because just think of the headache that would come after that. Where would they go? What would they do? How could they get jobs? Would they be able to support themselves? Would they start you know, starving to death? Uh, you know, All of those sorts of ideas were floated around. And, and even if you gave the absolute, every single possible benefit of the doubt to a person making that argument, maybe they were genuinely concerned for the slaves themselves and were looking out for the well-being of the slaves. You know, in this day and age, looking backwards, it still turns my stomach to think that a person would argue, well, no, 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 they're better off being enslaved because at least then they have a place to live and, you know, they get fed every day so they can survive. Whereas if they're free, well, who knows what would happen? And it, it to me, it really is not that much of a stretch. It's, it's legislating, saying people cannot have the freedom to do what they want to do because of the logistical problems that would go along with it, and it just doesn't even come close to holding water. I think, you know, another caller made a similar comment, but 
just put it in the context of, hey, like that's not a reason to not do it, but it's an interesting conversation. That I agree with. It is an interesting conversation, but that's not the basis for any argument for why we shouldn't move forward on, on something like that. Secondly, today, I want to mention I got an email from someone who wished to remain anonymous who said in response to the woman who called in making the biological argument of why polygamy is different than uh, homosexuality. Uh, he wanted to make the argument that he believes, you know, very, he sounded very, you know, true and honest and, <laughs> but, you know, an anonymous email, um, take it for what it's worth, said he really believes that he was born to be polyamorous. That's how he has always felt in the same way that, you know, people would describe feeling uh, drawn to either hom homosexuality or heterosexuality. He says he feels drawn to polyamory. Of course, my argument for the freedom for people to, you know, marry whoever they want or multiple people if they want has nothing to do with what is innately, you know, inborn into people. But as a, an interesting data point, there you go. And then finally today, I just wanted to drive home the point made by the title of today's episode. And because this is the perfect time to do it, obviously, a lot of the commentary heard in today's show could be misconstrued by, by you know, well-meaning people to think that I or the commentators on this show are advocating the idea that corporations are evil or immoral and they should be dealt with accordingly. I don't think that, and I don't think that any of the commentators on the show think that. I think that we recognize that corporations are amoral, as in morality literally doesn't come into the picture for corporations. They're not good. They're not bad. They don't try to do good. They don't try to do bad. They simply are, uh, and they are created to make money. That's it. So if doing good made them money, they would do that. If doing bad made them money, they would do that. And the people who run those corporations, they are humans with senses of morality, but the decisions made by those people, if they are moral decisions that cost the company money, the absolute structure, the foundational idea of a corporation will eject those people from within the ranks of the corporation. That's why the people who end up running corporations do things that are immoral because if they did things that were moral and good for society and, and you know the greater uh, population, they would not have that job for very long. It's 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 corporate Darwinism. It has nothing to do with whether or not corporations are built to be good or bad. They're neither. They're built in such a way that they are incapable of acting systematically with the intention of being moral. They can only act systematically with the intention of making money. Again, I would love to hear any comments you have on these or any topics you care to address. The number again, 206-202-3410. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bye, bye, it's now black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room
Places before, we'll take you out in the open. 